Welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach film and English literature at McEwen University, and the following was a lecture that I gave my students in the winter of 2021 in a course on looking at narrative across media, where we used Station Eleven, Emily St. John Mandel's post-apocalyptic novel, as a pillar around which we positioned many other instances of post-apocalyptic narrative. This final lecture in the series takes a look at T.C. Boyle's short story, After the Plague, as well as the final section of Station Eleven, titled Station Eleven. So here we are, at the end of a course about endings, really. I mean, it's been about the end of the world, or the end of a world, to echo some of Maximilian Feldner's thoughts on how Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven is not like other post-apocalyptic works because it doesn't have this teleological endpoint, that it's about the world going on after a world has ended. Um, T.C. Boyle's After the Plague is a little bit like that, although in some ways I guess I would argue that most secular modern post-apocalyptic narratives um, are like that, that there's a remnant that's gone on in some way, that, the, that, 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 that there is a, you know, there, something has survived. And that's been part of the apocalyptic tradition in some ways ever since uh, the Noahic Flood narrative where Noah and his family uh, survive and they're a remnant uh, Utnapishtim in the Gilgamesh narrative survives and there's a remnant. Uh, the Christian eschatological um, tradition, though, is, is less so. The world really does uh, end and, and a new one, you know, completely has to be built. Um, but uh, in After the Plague, T.C. Boyle's uh, short story, which was originally published in Playboy magazine, and I bring this up only uh, to say that, you know, I think too often we think the only things worth studying and analyzing and, and scrutinizing closely are the great works of literature. And we can't imagine that great works of literature might have shown up in a magazine like Playboy. Um, but once upon a time, short stories were published in popular magazines. And people read them for entertainment, not just in English courses. Um, T.C. Boyle's After the Plague would have been read by people for pleasure in, uh, in the issue that it came out in. It, it would have been the sort of thing that's like something to pass the time. Uh, and yet, we want to bring this short story uh, about an arguably a sort of last man on earth uh, short story into conversation with the very last section of Station Eleven, even though on the surface there's hardly any similarity. Like, why why do we compare in the first place? Because we find similarity in, in initially, we'll say, you know, this is a post-apocalyptic narrative and this is a post-apocalyptic narrative and we begin to compare those things. We compare things that are like. So if we go and see, you know, our favorite sports team more than once, we are going to compare this game with that game. If we go and see our favorite band or musical artist, we are going to compare this instance of their their live performance with that one. We're going to compare their new album with an old one. We're going to compare this new version of a video game with its its previous iterations. Uh, we compare sequels of movies with their earlier um precedents, their, their, their antecedents. We compare original versions of a thing, you know, if there was a, you know, like the book of the movie, right? Um, and so we've got this, we, we, we do this almost instinctively. We are constantly in comparative mode. But I want us to think about how we can compare in a more analytic and perhaps aware sort of way. So why do we compare narratives? And I think one of the reasons that we compare narratives is this idea of intertextuality that we've been looking at through the entire semester. This term popularized by Julia Kristeva, which refers to the multiple ways in which any one literary text is in fact made up of other texts by means of its open or covert citations and allusions. But in the case of the final section of Station Eleven, titled, by the way, Station Eleven, we don't really have anything that crosses over perfectly to After the Plague. This isn't like where, you know, we were doing the comparison of Mad Max, Fury Road, and Station Eleven, the section called The Prophet, where the story is the same. 
we don't have a last man on earth situation in Station Eleven, save perhaps for Jeevan's experience in the section called uh, Toronto in Station Eleven. But even there, it's not really the same narrative that we're taking a look at with T.C. Boyle's After the Plague. So what other aspect of intertextuality might we be talking about? Um, because what we're, you know, we, if we go with comparisons of similarity between Station Eleven as the entire novel and After the Plague, then we could say, okay, well, they both deal with a virus as an apocalyptic event, and they both deal with a softer, perhaps less violent post-apocalypse, right? Like uh, T.C. Boyle says right at the beginning of After the Plague, after the plague, it was some sort of Ebola mutation passed from hand to hand and nose to nose like the common cold. Life was different, more relaxed and expansive, more natural. So here we have a post-apocalypse that's a little bit like the one from Station Eleven, the sort that wouldn't necessarily make for a really great first-person shooter or, you know, an, an action film. But it is a last man on earth narrative. And as such, it does fall within a fairly common motif, at the very least, of the lone wanderer in a number of post-apocalyptic narratives. And while Kevin Costner's character in The Postman is by no means the last man on earth, the paratext of the film's poster certainly posits him as wandering as a lonely, you know, wandering alone in, in, the, in the wasteland. Same thing with Mad Max. He wanders alone uh, until he comes into contact with one of these, uh, the, these various communities. But then we get uh, things like Will Smith in I Am Legend, uh, a film adaptation of a book by Richard Matheson in which the world um, has been struck down by a vampire plague and all of the people in the world, at least as far as uh, his character is concerned, Robert Neville, um, have, been, have, have, become, have become vampires, zombie-like vampires. And there were other film versions of, of, this, uh, of this narrative, of this story. Um, but in, in this one, you know, we, we see Will Smith, again in the paratext, standing by himself, wandering through the wasteland all alone. There is a sort of last man on earth uh, motif that recurs in a number of post-apocalyptic narratives. And that's not me saying that all of them have that. It's just that it's fairly common. Uh, and, and in this way, after the plague is certainly intertextually linked to Station Eleven via their shared genre in what Abrams and Harpum talk about when they say that there are the intertextuality is about the multiple ways in which any one literary text is in fact made up of other texts by means of its unavoidable participation in the common stock of linguistic and literary conventions and procedures that are always already in place and constitute the discourses into which we are born. What are we talking about here? The stories we know... In, in general ways, sort of like the stories like Little Red Riding Hood, a girl running, you know, through the forest. And, you know, when you're a kid, that can be a fairy tale and there's a big bad wolf. And when you're an adult, it can be a slasher movie. Um, that, that, that basic underlying, you know, sometimes we refer to these as myths. Some people talk about them as archetypal narratives, um, legends, uh, stories that we tell and retell. Uh, lots of different ways to say redo the the narrative of or the story of of Romeo and Juliet it's been rewritten in many ways and in post apocalyptic zombie ways with warm bodies um the film warm bodies by the way not just people who are warm um so there's a way in which after the plague and station 11 are in conversation with each other broadly because they're both post-apocalyptic narratives. So we immediately, whether we know it or not, begin to compare them. Is this like that save for you know, we, we, we start reading it and we read that, you know, there was an Ebola-like plague. Oh, there was an Ebola-like plague in Station Eleven. Uh, and it's a softer, you know, sort of future for the apocalypse. And we go, oh, it was a softer future for the apocalypse in Station Eleven. And so we're like, maybe these are the same. And then we keep reading and we may find that that's not the case. And so, uh, you know, the question of why we compare isn't just about finding similarity because similarity can only take us so far. Instead, I think it's really valuable for us to take a look at the differences. And I've mentioned this before, the, the religious scholar Jonathan Z. Smith asking the question, what difference does a difference make? And this was like B 
beat into me by one of my religious studies professors when I was in my undergraduate work. And the idea here is simply, once we've established that there's similarity, once we've got something that we can say, okay, this is like that, so that we can at least come up with a contrastive device, I think it's, it's valuable for us to look at the ways in which the works are different. We, as I said before, we learn more from the difference once we've established the similarity than if we just list similarities. Because again, our, our list would be very short here, right? Ebola-like plague, soft apocalypse. Okay, we're done. So what would we learn? Whereas if we start to take a look at the really distinct differences, then we start learning things. And so we might take motifs from each and reminding you that a motif is an idea, image, action, or plot element that recurs throughout a literary work. So we're looking for repetition when we're looking for motifs. When we assess a work based upon a motif that appears but once, I think our assessment is ultimately flawed. Our analysis will be weak if we go, I found this one place where there's this one thing and I am going to extrapolate it to tell you what this entire narrative is about, right? How about we go for repetitions? What do we see over and over and over again in the work? And let's run with that. And once we identify motifs, which the Broadview Pocket Glossary of Literary Terms says... Um, once we identify those, we've found something that creates new levels of meaning and strengthens structural coherence. Those repetitions create new levels of meaning and strengthen structural coherence. It's what makes the story sort of tie together in ways that are, are go beyond the, the events, the plot, the story. The term is taken from music where it describes recurring melodies or themes. So, you know, that dovetails over nicely to the idea of theme um, and we'll talk about that in just a second, but I want to I want to identify like what are the, what motifs might we bring into contrast to learn more about what T.C. Boyle's After the Plague is about? What does it mean? How is it distinct from Station Eleven? What might we say about its contribution to the genre of post-apocalyptic narratives? After the Plague is about an individual, really. I mean, there are other characters, but really, he's this one solitary guy is our focalizer. He focalizes the action. He's the eyes, ears, the experience that it, you know, it, the story of after the plague is mediated to the, the reader through. He's our eyes and ears. And if we want to just take a look at the post-apocalyptic aspects of Station Eleven, it's not a single person. I mean, even if we were just to take one focalizer at a time, we still get multiple focalizers with Station Eleven. And they're connected in some way. It's one of the things Maximilian Feldner talks about in his article, that these characters are all connected through the character of Arthur Leander, this actor who dies in the first pages of the novel, is this connection point across different timelines. Connection. Traveling symphony. Hell is other people. People who are connected as a community. The Museum of Civilization, the Severn City Airport, a community. So rather than a single survivor, the last man on earth, we get communities of survival. And that is a distinction that's worth investigating because we might even get the same theme, right? Survival is insufficient. Do we need to do more than just survive? And there is, in a sense, a little bit of that in, in Boyle's After the Plague, but I don't really think that's, that's what the narrative is ultimately about. So we might, we might look at the theme. We might say, well, the theme of Station Eleven is survival is insufficient. We might even say that one of the aspects of survival being insufficient that Feldner and other academics like Men Carmen M. Mendez-Garcia talk about. They talk about culture. They talk about memory. Do they talk about community half as much as they ought to? given how prevalent that is in Station Eleven, that maybe one of the things that is crucial to going beyond just surviving is finding other people, right? So if we just took that idea of, of survival being insufficient via people rather than culture and memory, then we might find a tie between After the Plague and Station Eleven. And we might develop that as our theme. Again, the Broadview Pocket Glossary of Literary Terms saying that a theme is, in general, an idea explored in a work through character, action, and or 
image. To be fully developed, however, a theme must consist of more than a single concept or idea. So we wouldn't want to just say it's about love or it's about connection. It should also include an argument about the idea. Well, in this particular case, it might be that, you know, to really carry on, humans need connection right? The, or the, that the characters need connection. This is an exploration of, of that idea that, you know, we need other people. But I'd want us to be careful here, as many of you know, to not confuse the map with the territory, especially with T.C. Boyle's After the Plague. Because while it is a last man on earth narrative, it is also a narrative that is kind of messing with the ideas of what the last man on earth narrative is usually about. And this, you know, this comes to the fore on a uh, little ways into the story when um, our single last man on earth finds out that he's not alone in this post-apocalyptic wasteland, but rather that someone has survived and she's knocking at the door. Now, of course, I was faced with a moral dilemma, T.C. Boyle writes. Here was a fellow human being in need of help, a member of a species whose value had just vaulted into the rarefied atmosphere occupied by the gnatcatcher, the condor, and the beluga whale, by virtue of its rarity. Help her? Of course I would help her. But at the same time, I knew if I opened that door, I would invite the pestilence in, and that three days hence both she and I would be reduced to our mortal remains. Open up! she demanded, and the tattoo of her fists was the thunder of doom on the thin planks of the door. It occurred to me suddenly that she couldn't be infected. She'd have been dead and wasted by now if she were. Maybe she was like me. Maybe she'd been out brooding in her own cabin or hiking the mountain trails, utterly oblivious and immune to the general calamity. Maybe she was beautiful, nubile, a new eve for a new age. Maybe she would fill my nights with passion and my days with joy. As if in a trance, I crossed the room and stood at the door, my fingers on the long brass stem of the bolt. Are you alone? I asked, and the rasp of my own voice, so long in disuse, sounded strange in my ears. I heard her draw in a breath of astonishment and outrage from the far side of the thin panel that separated us. What the hell do you think, you son of a bitch? I've been lost out here in these stinking woods for I don't know how long, and I haven't had a scrap for days, not a goddamn scrap. Then you a barker, a grasser, a handful of soggy trail mix. Now will you fucking open this? Just look at the way that T.C. Boyle set that up. I think it's absolutely brilliant. He plays with us, plays with us as the readers who may be anticipating a sort of like, is this going to be like a romance? Is he going to find like his one true love and, and they're going to like repopulate the earth? Are, are, is there going to be bliss between them in this new Eden? And then, and we are disabused of this rather quickly. I mean, he has his own ideas in his mind about this nubile woman who might be outside the door. And then he finds out that, no, that's not the case. But T.C. Boyle's already laying the groundwork for that just by the shrill shrieking that, that Sarai, as her name turns out to be, which incidentally, um, you know, is a biblical name. Um, but she's, she's shrieking and shouting through the door. She's absolutely enraged. We can tell this is not going to be a blissful union at this point. Now, we would want to be very careful about playing the game of the map and the territory with a narrative like After the Plague. Because we might say that this short story has no really strong women in it, for example. We might say that T.C. Boyle is consequently, you know, misogynist or something like that. We might critique him for the thinness, perhaps, of these characters, although I actually think that Sarai is, is rather well rendered for his intentions. Um, but again, is T.C. Boyle's narrative, what, you know, we, we would want to ascertain what is it really about and what is its agenda? Um, is it meant to be a narrative that tells us something essential about the, you know, sort of binary genders of male and female? Or is it doing something else? I mean, later on, Sarai is, is, continues to be represented in this consistent way um, when they get around to a conversation about whether or not they're going to repopulate the earth. Procreation, I mean, says our narrator. If you look at it in a certain way, it's, well, it's our duty. Her laugh stung me. It was sharp and quick like the thrust of a knife. You idiot, she said. And she laughed again, slowing the gold 
showing the gold in her back teeth. I hate children always have. They're little monsters that grow up to be uptight, fussy pricks like you. She paused, smiled, and released an audible breath. I had my tubes tied 15 years ago. So Sarai is not a nice woman, but we wouldn't want to take the idea away from this text that that makes, you know, T.C. Boyle, someone who hates women or that all women are like this. Uh, We may come to it as a reader with our own gender position and say, you know, I once dated somebody like that and the text reads us back a little bit. But it's very, very important that we remember that what we're dealing with is what Neil Gaiman refers to fiction as the beautiful lie. Right, these this beautiful lie, this wonderful lie. We're we're not reading about real people. We are reading about contrived constructions, characters who have been created to deliver a certain theme, to act as motifs, potentially. Remember, as Alfred Korsbisky said, the map is not the territory, the word is not the thing it describes. The representation is not the reality. And we might find ourselves really offended by the representation of women in After the Plague. And I'm not saying you can't be offended by it. I'm just saying, like, to do a decent analysis of this narrative, you might need to bracket that offense long enough to get an idea of what Boyle is doing here, what Boyle is trying to achieve. If we think that this is a roadmap for good relationships or a roadmap for, you know, what people are really like. Well, we all know what women are really like, or we all know what men are really like, or we all know what whomever are really like. Well, narratives don't often give us that. Narratives usually give us caricatures of reality. The people in stories are always far simpler uh, than they are in reality. Even in the most realistically rendered narratives, there is always an oversimplification going on where the author can take his characters and do his or her characters and do something with them to deliver a concept, an idea, a theme, etc. But what if this isn't about theme? What if T.C. Boyle doesn't have a strong thematic core in the same way that Station Eleven does? Like, Emily St. John Mandel walks right out with a silver platter and goes, here's my theme. Survival is insufficient. There you go. Talk about it. Look for the motifs. I've already told you what the, you know, I've already told you where you're going to end up. Now you can find the breadcrumbs that get you there. Um, But T.C. Boyle's After the Plague doesn't seem to deliver on the same sort of level when it comes to theme. So let's try one of our other tools that we've learned about this semester, which is Poe's idea of the unity of effect. Now, normally, the unity of effect is reserved as a lens for short narratives, because Poe said you can't really have a unity of effect in a novel. It just, it, it, it doesn't hold your attention long enough. And I would readily concede that he's correct. Longer works work with a proliferation of effects, a cornucopia of effects. We get a number of different effects. But if we just look at you know, one part of Station Eleven or even investigate all of the effects that Station Eleven has, I don't think we find, ultimately, the effect that T.C. Boyle is going for. And it's contrasting these works that might demonstrate this to us. So if we were just to investigate After the Plague for its unity of effect, what might we find? So how how do we find that out? Same thing we find out anything when it comes to a narrative. We use the narrative itself be it film or game or prose narrative or comic book, as our evidence. We don't talk about real people. We don't talk about real instances. I mean, just think about what we would be doing to talk about real post-apocalypses when, as far as these sorts of apocalypses are concerned, the human race hasn't encountered one yet. We've had world-ending events in a sort of sense of, like, the civilization crumbles. But to have the entire planet die off, well, we haven't had that happen yet. So it's funny to me that anybody would ever say anything like, well... You know, that just seems fake that that would happen in a post-apocalypse, given that we we don't really have a benchmark to know. We have some indicators, but we don't know for certain. But once we begin, you know, looking at this just for effect, rather than playing the game of whether or not any of it's realistic, 
because it's not. It's a beautiful lie. It's all made up. Um, then I think that we can begin to appreciate it in the same way that we appreciate other forms of art. And see, this is the tricky thing about narrative is that once we get invested with the characters, especially if they're filmed, like if it's real actors being filmed on a soundstage or a location that looks real, and it gives us that sense of verisimilitude that we talked about last time, that feel of reality, it's very hard for us to distance ourselves from the fact that this is all contrived. It's as contrived to some degree as Harry Potter and Hogwarts. It's as much fiction as Lord of the Rings. No hobbits, no elves, but we still get a strong measure of control on the creative agent's part, be it an author or a screenwriter or a director, games designer. These people are looking to design something with even if it's not a perfect unity, a unity of effect, that they want to generate some sort of emotional effect on the part of the reader. So if we take a look at just the text of what's going on in After the Plague and we really pay attention to it, uh, looking at the scenes, what happens in the story, if you read it out loud, what would it sound like? Um, we begin to see a sort of recurrence of pattern where T.C. Boyle has these wonderful, like little moments of lyrical wonder and romance, uh, you know, like when um, our, our, you know, our narrator has met up with his the, the second woman. And they're talking about how she was stuck in a sensory deprivation tank and it's somewhat touching. And he calls out, you know, it, it, he, he says, uh, her voice died in her throat and she turned those sorrowful eyes on me. I put my other arm around her and held her. Hush, I whispered. It's all right now. Everything's all right. It was a conventional thing to say and it was a lie. But I said it and I held her and felt her relax in my arms. It was then, almost to the precise moment, that Sarai's naked sliver of a face appeared at the window, framed by her two uplifted hands and a rock the size of my Webster's unabridged dictionary. What about me, you son of a bitch? She shouted, and there it was again, everlasting stone and frangible glass and not a glazier left alive on the planet. She just hurdles this rock through the window. So this is Sarai returning. She's, she walks out on him. She goes and she moves into a bigger house. He meets another woman. They're enjoying their life together. Sarai shows up. What about me, you son of a bitch? She's just a terror. But she's not, like, terrifying in a sort of horror film kind of way. The, the, the effect that Boyle is going for isn't fear, but it is related, I am convinced, to one of the other genres that openly, openly trades in emotion. We've had so many works this semester that look at the brutal possibilities of the post-apocalyptic. The Walking Dead, Mad Max Fury Road, Contagion, more as apocalyptic event than post-apocalypse, Stephen King's The Stand. These are all... Uh, about the unity of effect. If we wanted to talk about the effects that these narratives are going for, um, they're not going to be the effects that Boyle is trying to tease out in After the Plague. We've identified that there is a difference between the way in which Emily St. John Mandel has structured her narrative, created her little piece of art in this post-apocalyptic genre, how it's distinct from The Walking Dead, how it's distinct from Mad Max Fury Road. These are worlds of violence, of um, humans gone to some degree feral. Uh, who's the, you know, what are the worst things in the future? What do you have to watch out for in these narratives? Uh, other people. And again, let's be careful about the map versus the territory because for years, people have been talking about how if we all got stuck on a, on a desert island, we'd probably go Lord of the Flies. As it turns out, that actually happened and that's not what occurred. The, the people were kind of nice to each other. And so that particular map is really great as an investigation of the darker side of humanity. But is it 
a perfect replication of the territory? No. And that's okay. Narratives don't need to be. Fictional narratives don't have to explore every avenue of the human experience. In fact, with the case of narratives like The Walking Dead and Mad Max Fury Road, we're playing that game of what if. What if there was a zombie apocalypse? What if in the future we were driving around in cool rat rods and there was no water? You know, what if, what if, what if, what if we had a ton of gasoline and bullets, but no water? What would that world be like? Um, Contagion. What if we get a, a pandemic and it's more virulent than the one that we're currently experiencing? What if, what if, what if? Um, so, you know, in as much as people will say like, oh, this narrative really speaks to the human condition in some way, I'm always a little leery to get too tied to that kind of reading where it becomes a sort of this fiction supports some truth about the real world. Um, it might support that particular writer's truth. It might support one or two people's truths. But, you know, are we going to bring the tools of anthropology to a narrative in, in, and say, okay, everything that's going on inside this story, we're going to bring these real world tools, these tools by which we understand humanity, sociology, psychology, to bear on characters who have been crafted and contrived by an author for a very particular reason. And potentially that reason isn't some deep-seated, I have new insight into the human condition, but perhaps something else, something a little, you know, that we might think of as not being nearly worth our attention, and yet that we love so very dearly. We saw it earlier in the semester with Calvin and Hobbes. We took a little bit of a look at Calvin and Hobbes, and the strip that we looked at, the panels that we looked at, involved some of the very sorts of things that we see in After the Plague, which is dissonance uh, between people. Um, people being upset with each other. Calvin having soaked Susie, the little girl from down the street, and her screaming, somewhat Sarai-like, but she's nowhere near Sarai. Why'd you do that, you mean little creep? I'm telling your mom. Uh-oh. And we might for a moment go, oh, there's a similarity there, and then go, but that can't be the same thing. And yet, I want us to just entertain for a moment the very last panel of that comic, which featured Calvin waiting for his father to come give him his disciplinary uh, just, you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> just rewards. And there's a bucket over the door, and Calvin's, he <laughs> just can't wait. There's this sort of glee. And what we have here is a comedic what? Punchline. A comedic punchline. I think T.C. Boyle has been doing that very thing in terms of a unity of effect in After the Plague. The very last page of After the Plague. Hello, he said, stopping a few feet from us and staring first at my face and then at Felicia's breasts and finally, with an effort, bending to check the laces of his boots. Our narrator and his new uh, amour, his new love, Felicia, walking naked on the beach, a new Adam and Eve, walking around, and they run into somebody. Glad to see you two made it, he said, speaking to the sand. Likewise, I returned. Over lunch on the deck, shrimp salad sandwiches on Felicia baked bread, we traded stories. It seems he was hiking in the mountains when the pestilence descended. The mountains? I interrupted. Whereabouts? Oh, he said, waving a dismissive hand, up in the Sierras, just above this little town. You've probably never heard of it. Fish Fry Flats? I let him go on a while, explaining how he'd lost his girlfriend, and suddenly we begin to put the pieces together in this short story. His girlfriend talked about having gone for, you know, a hike... Um, with her boyfriend and that he disappeared and she just assumed that he died. Now it sounds kind of like he might have maybe abandoned her. I, I have to wonder, you know, if at this point we think like maybe he just didn't come back because we know Sarai now um, and wandered for days before he finally came out on a mountain road and appropriated a car to go down to Los Angeles, one big cemetery and how he'd come up the coast and had been wandering ever since. I don't think I've ever felt such exhilaration, such a rush of excitement, such perfect and inimitable a sense of closure. I couldn't keep from interrupting him again. I'm clairvoyant, I said, raising my glass to the man sitting opposite to me, to, F to Felicia and her breasts, to the happy fables in the teeming seas, or sorry, happy fishes, I said fables, to the happy fishes in the teeming seas and the birds flocking without number in the unencumbered skies. Your name's Howard, right? Howard was stunned. 
He set down his sandwich and wiped a fleck of mayonnaise from his lips. How did you guess, he said, gaping up at me out of eyes that were innocent and pure, the newest eyes in the world. I just smiled and shrugged as if it were my secret. After lunch, I said, I've got somebody I want you to meet. It's a punchline. This whole story is, is for entertainment. We will probably not learn anything deep about the human spirit from T.C. Boyle's After the Plague. And yet, you might be like, why would you include him? If you were in my English course six, seven years ago, I included T.C. Boyle's Greasy Lake. It is a widely anthologized narrative about rebel youth. T.C. Boyle is considered a great literary writer. And yet, do I think that After the Plague is a great work with deep literary meaning? No. But do I think it's an incredibly entertaining story? Yes. Yes, I do. And in that, I, I, the reason that I've, I've wanted to talk about that is because we have to get to the ending to really know what the work is fully about. Like, if we begin to draw conclusions before we've arrived at the ending, I mean, we, we will anyway because we're pattern recognition animals, but when we get to the ending, that's when we can really assess the whole work. You know, if the ending of a story is a punchline, then the whole short story or comic was probably a joke. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way, like it was a joke, but rather that, hey, you want to hear a joke? Okay, I've got a really funny story. Okay, so the entire world dies. And you're like, that's not funny. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. It gets funny. And like, you're the only person left in the entire world. And along comes this woman and she's just awful. She's just absolutely awful. And so begins the joke. I mean, obviously, T.C. Boyle tells it with a little less, you know, vernacular, uh, conversational a tone. But nevertheless, I think ultimately he is, he's writing comedy. He's writing something funny. And it has, it shares more in common with the comedic television series, The Last Man on Earth, than it does really ultimately with Station Eleven. So you might say, well, why have you wasted all of our time doing this? Well, number one, to review some of the concepts from the semester. Number two, because I love it and I think it's hysterical. And number three, because we need to come back to talking about Station Eleven and Mad Max Fury Road. And now that we know like an approach that we can take, we can take all these different approaches, intertextuality, map versus the territory, unity of effect. I got to say, I love the unity of effect. I like talking about, I like analyzing the emotional impact of narrative. I think we don't do it enough. I think we're in such a hurry to get to subtext as English profs, as English students, as people in general, we are trained by a lot of well-meaning high school English teachers and university English profs to think that the only narratives worth taking a look at are ultimately those that are meaningful. I just read something the other day about horror films. A guy said, um, the best horror films are the ones with meaning. And I was like, are you sure? I, I, uh, something about me wants to push back against that. Cause I'm thinking like, I'll bet there are some movies that scare the pants off of people and were absolutely fabulous. And at the end of the day, don't have any deeper meaning, to, but they're just terrifying. Right? So there's a lot, there's a lot of emphasis put on deeper meaning. And I've said this before, but you know, gosh, I'm going to say it again. Why, why, do we engage with narrative in the first place? We engage with it to escape. We engage with it, sure, to learn, absolutely. But when we sit down to pick our show, to pick a movie to watch with our family, do we sit down and go, well, this one reveals deeper meanings about... Mm -mm -mm. And maybe some people do. And, and there are certainly days where it's like, you know, I really do want something that's going to say something about the human spirit. I love those sorts of movies. I like Hidden Figures, for example. I thought it was an absolutely fabulous film. I like that kind of movie. But at the same time, I also absolutely love me something that's just funny or, or lighthearted or, you know, maybe just scary or just action-packed. And it makes me feel something for a time. We mostly, I believe engage with narrative because of how it makes us feel, how it makes us feel. The last section of Station Eleven, titled Station Eleven, tells us who, who the prophet really was. We find out, you know, the truth about the prophet, we might say. And that revelation is so distinct from 
the way that the villain is treated in Mad Max Fury Road. So when we were talking about Mad Max Fury Road, I said, we have the same story here. So again, story versus narrative. Story is an event or series of events. We often use the word plot for what we mean here. An event or series of events. That's what plot is, just the events. And then a narrative is a representation of an event or series of events. So it's the way in which the plot is arranged. Think about Station Eleven. Is it linear in its plot? No, it's all over the place. But the way in which Emily St. John Mandel has arranged the revelations that we get in terms of, of story, right? Like she, she's split up the elements of story into a fragmented narrative. Sometimes we can find narratives that have the same story, but are vastly different in the way that they express that. So, to remind you, the story of Mad Max Fury Road involves a cult leader, stolen wives, a chase, kidnappings, death of a villain, and escape. So does Station Eleven, as it turns out, spread out over one of the post-apocalyptic timelines narratives. Um, We have a cult cult leader, the prophet... uh, not a stolen wife, but a wife who runs away and then keeps going with the traveling symphony. A chase the prophet comes after to get his property back, as it were. Uh, there are some kidnappings. Some of the characters go missing. And then finally the prophet dies. prophet is killed. <clears throat> and they escape. But who is the prophet? And, and how does the ending change the way that we feel about these two characters? Because in the one, in Mad Max Fury Road, we've got this, you know, terrifying... Immortan Joe, who is perfectly monstrous. And there's at no point during the film do they go, let me tell you about his misbegotten childhood, his origin story that will generate sympathy for him. Oh, no, 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 no sympathy for this particular devil. Drive him up on your cool, jacked up hot rod, throw his body into the crowd and watch them tear it to pieces. Mad Max Fury Road does not weep for the loss of Immortan Joe. But Station Eleven certainly weeps for the loss of the prophet, or at least the boy that he once was. So I'm going to read a section from Station Eleven near the ending. It's a bit of a, it's, it's an extended bit, so uh, bear with me. We're with Arthur Leander, by the way, the, uh, the actor who dies in the first pages of Station Eleven. Fifteen minutes. The stage manager called from just outside the door. We are with Arthur the night of his death. Thank you, 15, Arthur said and began running his lines from the beginning. At our eldest born speak first, he glanced at his watch. It was still only 6 a.m. in Israel, but he knew Tyler and Elizabeth got up early. Tyler is his son. He negotiated his way past his ex-wife. Two minutes, Elizabeth. I know he's getting ready for school. I just want to hear his voice. And closed his eyes to listen to the rustling of the telephone being transferred into his son's small hands. My eldest born, my only born, my heart. Why are you calling? That suspicious little voice. He remembered that Tyler was angry with him. I wanted to say hello. Then why weren't you here for my birthday? Arthur had promised to be in Jerusalem for Tyler's birthday, but he'd made that promise ten months ago and had frankly forgotten about it until Tyler had called him yesterday. Arthur's apologies hadn't landed. I can't be there, buddy. I would if I could. But aren't you coming to New York soon? Won't I see you next week? Tyler had nothing to say to this. You're flying to New York tonight, aren't you? I guess. Did you read those comic books I sent you? Tyler didn't respond. Arthur sat on the sofa and rested his forehead in the palm of his hand. Did you like them, Tyler? Those comic books? Yeah. Ten minutes, the stage manager said at the door. Thank you, Ten. I looked at the comic books, Arthur said, but I don't think I completely understood what they were about. I was hoping maybe you could explain them to me. What about them? Well, tell me about Dr. Eleven. He lives on a space station. Really? A space station? It's like a planet, but a little planet, Tyler said. Actually, it's sort of broken. It went through a wormhole... So it's hiding in deep space, but its systems were damaged, so on its surface, it's almost all water. He was warming to his subject. All water, Arthur raised his head. It had been a mistake to let Tyler get so far away from him, but perhaps the mistake wasn't unfixable. So they live in the water, Dr. Eleven and his his people. They live on islands. They have a city that's all made of islands. There's like bridges and boats, but it's dangerous because of the seahorses. The seahorses are dangerous? They're not like the seahorses we saw in the jar in Chinatown that one time. They're big. How big? Really big. I think they're really big. 
they're these huge these huge things and they ride up out of the water and they've got eyes like fish and they've got people riding on them and they want to catch you what happens if a seahorse catches you then it pulls you under tyler said and then you belong to the undersea the undersea it's an underwater place he was talking fast now caught up they're dr 11's enemies but they're not really bad they just want to go home buddy arthur said tyler i want you to know that i love you the silence was so long that he could have thought he'd lost he would have thought he'd lost the connection if not for the sound of a passing car the boy must be standing by an open window you too tyler said it was difficult to hear him his voice was so small the door to his dressing room opened a crack five minutes the stage manager said arthur waved in response buddy he said i have to go now are you doing a movie not tonight buddy i'm going up on stage okay bye Tyler said, goodbye, I'll see you in New York next week. And of course, we know that Arthur's not going to see Tyler in New York next week. We already know how that plays. And the emotional impact of that moment is intensified in several ways because we already know what is going to happen. It would not have landed if the book had opened with this. We wouldn't have had context. We wouldn't have had... Um, chapter after chapter of Arthur's life to, to know the import of this moment. We wouldn't have had the prophet and our own potential hatred for him to make this bittersweet rather than just plot, rather than just an event. It becomes effect. And I love the passage that uh, ends, uh, really, it, it's Arthur's departure uh, as he ruminates, warming up before he is to play King Lear on stage. And he begins to imagine uh, all these things, these, these memories. He found he was a man who repented almost everything, regrets crowding in around him like moths to a light. This was actually the main difference between 21 and 51, he decided. The sheer volume of regret. He had done some things he wasn't proud of. If Miranda was so unhappy in Hollywood, why hadn't he just taken her away from there? It wouldn't have been difficult the way he dropped Miranda for Elizabeth and Elizabeth for Lydia and let Lydia slip away to someone else. The way he'd let Tyler be taken to the other side of the world. The way he'd spent his entire life chasing after something, money or fame or immortality or all of the above. He didn't really even know his only brother. How many friendships had he neglected until they'd faded out? On the first night of previews, he'd barely made it off stage. On the second night, he'd arrived on the platform with a strategy. He stared at his crown and ran through a secret list of everything that was good. The pink magnolias in the backyard of the house in Los Angeles. Outdoor concerts, the way the sound rises up into the sky. Tyler in the bathtub at two, laughing in a cloud of bubble bath. Elizabeth in the pool at night, at the beginning before they'd ever had a single fight. The way she dove in almost silently, the double moons on the surface breaking into shards. Dancing with Clark when they were both 18, their fake IDs in their pockets, Clark flickering in the strobe lights. Miranda's eyes, the way she looked at him when she was 25 and still loved him. His third wife, Lydia, doing yoga on the back patio in the mornings. The croissants at the cafe across the street from his hotel. Tanya sipping wine, her smile. Riding in his father's snowplow when he was nine, the time Arthur told a joke and his father and his little brother couldn't stop laughing. The sheer joy he'd felt at that moment. Tyler. The list is everything that was good. And for Arthur, in the moment of the night of his, his death, Tyler was good. He becomes the prophet, but he was not always the prophet. One world ends and another begins. The world of Tyler as a boy and then the post-apocalypse. And it's not just a post-apocalyptic world that Tyler lives in and becomes the prophet in, but rather that Tyler himself is those positions of the apocalyptic event, the post-apocalypse, and then the before. That the characters themselves in those ways of the little apocalypses that we've been talking about all term act as nodes for. We aren't the same people all our lives. Arthur certainly has been, hasn't been. Clark certainly hasn't been. Kirsten certainly hasn't been. And that's me playing a little bit through the map and the territory. But we know that we change and it's something that we, 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 we recognize. These characters change in very particular ways. And Emily St. John Mandel crafts them to change in those ways. Why is it 
that Tyler doesn't turn out to be somebody good because Emily St. John Mandel, for the narrative that she was telling, needed him not to. For the effect that it would have upon us as the reader when we come to that point, if nothing else. I don't think that at the end of the day, Emily St. John Mandel is trying to say anything about religion. I don't think she's trying to say that people who read the Bible will all turn into the, you know, the prophet, that the Tylers of the world who read the Bible will turn into the prophet. I think that would be a ridiculous reading of this narrative. I think she's just talking about loss. I think she's talking about the way in which some, you know, we, we have a thing and then it's gone. This novel is about loss over and over again. The loss of the, ele- the world of electricity, the loss of Los Angeles for Miranda, the loss of Jeevan's relationship with his girlfriend at the beginning. But Emily St. John Mandel says it's not the end. It's not where things stop. The world goes on. And sometimes it's ugly in the, na- in the normal sort of post-apocalyptic way. And in others, it's her vision of a post-apocalypse where at the very end, there are lights on the horizon, right? As electricity has returned. If nothing else, it's pleasant to consider the possibilities, some of the last words of the novel. If nothing else, it's pleasant to consider the possibility. And Station Eleven is certainly a novel of pleasant possibilities, but all fiction, all fiction is about possibility. It's not about what really is at the end of the day, but what might be, what we might aspire to be, what we could be at our worst. And it's always about us being able to live the lives we don't have the time for in the lives that we have. About being able to exit the world of facts, enter the world of fiction, and experience the beautiful lie. To experience it in all the ways that we can, in comparative moments of intertextuality, in moments of deep analysis of motif and theme, in being aware that there is a map and a territory and not blurring those things, but also perhaps in just resting in the sheer pleasure of emotion that we derive from enjoying these stories that never happened about people who never lived in a world that will never be. Thanks for taking this journey with me this semester. Best wishes to all of you. Hang in, check out the the, the channel from time to time, drop back in, say hi. Uh, If you're not one of my students, you can do that too. Uh, Thanks again for coming along with me on this journey through uh, a more pleasant post-apocalypse with Station Eleven.